Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, very exciting. All about the battleship USS Iowa and a new PBS documentary on its history. A quick overview before we dig into some details with my guests this hour. The battleship Iowa is actually the fourth in the U.S. Navy to be named after our state. During World War II, she carried President Roosevelt across the Atlantic to Algeria. He was en route to a conference well-known in 1943 in Tehran with Churchill and Stalin. Now, when transferred to the Pacific Fleet in 1944, the Iowa shelled beachheads in advance of the Allied amphibious landings also accompanied aircraft carriers operating in the Marshall Islands. During the Korean War, the Iowa was involved in raids on the North Korean coast. After that, she was decommissioned, mothballed for a time, then reactivated in the 1980s under President Reagan. In April of 1989, disaster struck the Iowa in peacetime. An explosion wrecked her number two gun turret killing 47 sailors. The Iowa was decommissioned for the last time in October of 1990. In 2011, the Iowa was donated to the nonprofit Pacific Battleship Center, moved to a berth at the Port of Los Angeles, where she was open to the public as the, the USS Iowa Museum. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I think it was 2016, I had the pleasure of taking a tour of this magnificent Battleship, now a floating museum. Before we meet our guests for this hour, let's listen to the opening minute or so of this new PBS documentary called USS Iowa, Honoring the American Spirit. Battleships are the pinnacle of naval might. The Iowa-class battleships are the biggest battleships that the United States Navy ever put out to sea. I hereby assume command of the USS Iowa. I loved this ship, even though the worst time I had in the Navy was on this ship. The ship was the site of one of the largest peacetime loss of life accidents. Is Iowa a World War II story? Is it a Korea story? Is it a 1980s story? Is it a new museum story? Is it the story of April 19th? And the answer is yes, it's all of those. It is the quintessential surface warrior, the last of the best. From the PBS documentary, USS Iowa, Honoring the American Spirit, a really magnificent documentary I had the chance of previewing last night. The air date on PBS, Iowa PBS, the 1st of March. There's premieres um, this weekend in Waterloo and Johnston. I believe those are sold out. Let's welcome our guests for this hour, uh, Iowa PBS producer and director of this film, Patrick Boberg. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, appreciate it. This is a living documentary. It's being edited to this moment. In fact, one of the other guests, uh, <laughs> David, um, sent me some notes about five minutes ago that we're, we're still making it happen. Wow. So uh, the film that people see this weekend might see a couple of tweaks before it airs, and we just want to make sure we get it right. Tell the story right. All right. Very good. Uh, David Way is with us, historian and uh, artifacts collection manager uh, for this uh, project. Uh, David, welcome to the program. You've been involved with the Iowa for a long, un long time, I understand. 
Yes, that's correct. It's been about ten and a half years, and I was one of the folks that helped rescue her from uh, the, uh, Benicia Bay, the mothball fleet, and we towed her out and for about nine months actually lived on board the ship at the Port of Richmond while she was uh, undergoing refurbishment to open up as a museum memorial ship in uh, 2012. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll get more details on that fascinating story. Uh, you okay. as a part of a group to to help save that. It's a museum. Anybody can visit it. And as a matter of fact, and I took advantage of this, David. You certainly know this. As an Iowan, if you show an Iowa driver's license, there is no fee going on uh, to to tour uh, the USS Iowa. So there's a little hint if you head out to California, the port of Los Angeles. Yeah. Also, right. yeah. Also. Also with us, Vernie Hart, a U.S. Navy veteran, former USS Iowa crew member. Vernie Hart, thank you for your service to our country and for being part of this program. Oh, I'm glad to be here, and it's a pleasure to serve my country in, in the way that I did. Um, I was a hall technician on, on the USS Iowa, and uh, when you get to her, you got to look at the sexy curves. Um, she's <laughs> narrow at the front and wide in the middle. And uh, yeah. It's just an awesome, awesome thing to be on. Yeah, it is awe-inspiring to stand on it. And I think there's a quote in here. It's, it's, it's amazing that this, this floats. There's so, it's a, <laughs> who said it, an, a, a tank on the, on the water, something like that. David, let's start off with you, since you know so much about battleships in general. Um, I don't think you'd um, worry about the title, sort of battleship nerd or geek, as part of your resume. <laughs> Um, I kind of make fun of myself and uh, call myself a um, naval uh, nerdologist. So, uh, therefore, <laughs> I practice naval nerdology. But I've had a passion for warships uh, ever since I was watching Victory at Sea in the, you know, in the 60s when I was six years old. And I've been fortunate um, to have worked out not only on Iowa, but also I was during high school and college on the Queen Mary. And then as a member mm. of the Naval Institute and Navy League, I've interfaced with the Navy quite a bit, being on commissioning committees and open houses and a few cruises out at sea. So it's, um, yeah. I feel like I've been an extended part of the Navy, although I didn't serve. Mm-hmm. D- David, set the scene for us. Help us understand this class of battleship. It is called the Iowa-class uh, battleship. Sure. Um, there are more than just the U.S.-Iowa in this group. Uh, how did the Iowa class of battleship come to be? Why were they needed? What particular qualities were they designed for? So around 1938, with the war uh, clouds gathering, there was a great fear um, with the American Navy regarding what was taking place with both Germany and Japan in secret, the ships they were building and the improvements also that they were making to existing ships were unknown, and there was a great fear of that unknown. So they set out to build a ship capable of meeting and taking care of, taking, you know, the business of warfare to them and succeeding. So they put the best of everything in the Iowa-class battleships. And at one point, Congress even challenged, you know, why weren't they building uh, carriers instead of these battleships. And the uh, chief of naval operations, uh, Admiral King, felt like there was still a place uh, for these ships. So uh, there was uh, six. Go ahead. Sorry. 
Yeah, to talk about the large guns, because that's really what stands out when you stand on her or see her, uh, their power, their range, hurling these 16-inch shells. These are 300-pound shells, if I'm remembering from the documentary, oh. up to 23 oh, no. miles. Oh, Sorry, yeah, over the horizon. More than that. More than right, that. Okay, right. Go ahead. Yeah, so, yeah, these uh, four um, Iowa-class sister ships that were finally commissioned um, to carry the largest guns that were ever placed on an American warship. They're called 16-inch 50-caliber guns. The only thing that was larger uh, in any Navy was on the Japanese warships. There was the Yamato and Mishashi. They had 18-inch guns. But America actually did have an 18-inch gun, and when it came time to make a decision on what we were going to place on the Iowa class, we chose the 16-inch 50-caliber gun, saving 25% weight in the gun system. Uh, and that point in time, the decision was based on they developed a 2,700-pound armor-piercing projectile that had the same mm. force of an 18-inch shell. And I see. it could go through 18 inches of armor or approximately 30 feet of a concrete. It could be a bunker buster. And Amazing. the other shell, the other shell was a, it's called a high capacity shell. It's 1,900 pounds and it's for either shore bombardment or unarmored uh, targets. And on a beachhead, it could create a crater 20 feet deep, 50 feet wide, and has a bursting diameter of about 200 yards. Uh, I want to go to. I want. I want to go to before our break. Come up to some audio that's featured in this uh, film, uh, the PBS film. Uh, Here's some newsreel footage from the film of the ship's 1942 launch, uh, calling it the mightiest battleship ever built. Let's have a listen. The mightiest battleship ever built, the USS Iowa. She displaces 45,000 tons, 10,000 tons more than Uncle Sam's next largest warship. The First Lady attends this wartime launching. The Iowa is sponsored by Iowa-born Mrs. Henry A. Wallace, wife of the Vice President. Most details of the $85 million Iowa's armament are secret, but it has been announced that her main battery will consist of 16-inch guns. Now, the Secretary of the Navy at that time under Franklin Roosevelt, Frank Knox, spoke at the ship's launch. He directed his attention to the ship's first crew, whom he said were in an enviable position. I suppose you don't realize it, but I'd like to remind you that you officers and men are probably the object of envy to most of the men in the United States Navy. And you young men who make up the crew are the objects of envy to all the young men of America. Almost every one of whom would like to stand in your shoes. Remember that it was that kind of courage and that indomitable spirit that has animated the American Army and Navy from its beginning. And it was that spirit and that type of courage that gave us this God-blessed country for which we're all Today, ready, if need be, to die. 1942, then uh, Secretary of the U.S. Navy, uh, Frank Knox. We have about a minute before we go to break, but David, perhaps you can take us back to, to help. I mean, they're, they're antiquated now, but what did it mean to have this battleship back in 1942? Quickly. Well, she brought 
a, a great comfort of, you know, for aircraft carriers and that the modern warships were joining the fleet after a absence of uh, battleship construction. The North Carolina and Washington came out later on the South Dakota class were the new battleships. And we didn't build battleships due to the uh, Naval Treaty of 1922. We didn't commission a new battleship for 18 years. So the uh, ships that were caught at Pearl Harbor were really modified World War One battleships. So when okay. these newer David ships Way- joined in a yeah. fleet. Yeah, was All good. right, David uh, Way, stand by. David Way, yep. a historian with us, also Vernie Hart. He served aboard the USS Iowa as a crew member. Uh, we'll get his experiences. Patrick Boberg, Iowa PBS producer and director. We'll be back in just a moment. USS Iowa Battleship, our focus. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Our focus this hour, uh, the new PBS documentary on the USS Iowa, the battleship, uh, Honoring the American Spirit, uh, the title of this documentary. We have the producer and director of it from Iowa PBS, Patrick Boberg, also Vernie Hart, uh, U.S. Navy veteran, former USS Iowa crew member, and uh, David Way, historian, who's been laying the groundwork for us to understand uh, how this fit into World War II. We'll talk about uh, uh, also the Korean conflict, uh, how the USS Iowa served during that time and afterwards to way up until it was decommissioned for the last time in 1990. Vernie Hart, uh, let's get your experiences. Uh, You served on board the Iowa late in its career uh, when it had been uh, put back into service under Ronald Reagan, brought out of mothballs. Uh, Tell us, how did you come to serve on the USS Iowa? Well, I uh, went through boot camp, and, uh, of course, every every, uh, sailor's dream when you go into boot camp is to be on something cool. And uh, I went you know, to apprenticeship schooling. And then uh, in November, when I graduated from apprenticeship schooling, they said, uh, you're going to the USS Iowa. And I was just like, what? <laughs> I hurried up and ran to the phone, called my mom. I said, I'm I'm from Iowa and I'm on the Iowa. Can't believe this, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, it was great. I want, Yeah, I wonder if they take that into consideration, being from Iowa, to put you on the Iowa. Did you ever find that out? Um, not really. Um, it's just where they needed to fill a billet. Everybody has a billet. Yep. Every rate has a billet. So they needed an X amount of firemen, uh, to go there. And that was my first rate before I became a hall tech. And then they, uh, they just cut your orders to there. Um, there was only 21 of us from Iowa on the Iowa when I first got there and we're mm-hmm. uh, actually part of the, the plank owners, um, of the ship. So, okay, what years were you on the Iowa? I was on the Iowa from 83 um, to 86. Okay. Uh, t- tell us, you're using some Navy uh, lingo there that we might not all understand. <laughs> just, just describe your work uh, aboard this ship. Uh, my work my work on, on board the Iowa 
as uh, what I cons- what I called as a hall technician. Um, we did all the structural steel uh, fittings uh, as far as welding any any high pressure plate or anything. Uh, we did all the piping uh, piping repairs. We were the onboard fire department on board the ship when you're out at sea. We also were uh, in charge of the fire departments when we were in port. Um, we also took care of the sewage system, the carpenters, um, the sheet metal shop, anything that could be built out of sheet metal. We also, um, I don't know if uh, mentioned this before, uh, we were considered a tender for any small ships that went with us. So if they needed something fixed or apart or something, um, hmm. we could take care of that out at sea and uh, send it across wire or cable to them um, if we needed to. Yeah. You were off the USS Iowa um, before the disaster in 1989 that took so many lives. Um, but did you ever experience a, a fire on board you had to deal with as, as a fireman? Uh, we did. Um, we were uh, under high power run. Um, we had all eight boilers going, all four engine rooms going. And uh, we had a fire in engine room number, our fire room number one. Uh, what had happened is a electrician went down he reset a breaker because the ventilation shut down um it shut off again his third time down it blew a big hole in the back of the panel and caught the bilges on fire and we fought that fire for roughly about 40 minutes taking turns uh if you can imagine full power running everything you got all eight boilers uh you start adding water around heat it's going to build steam so uh, the walls were sweating and everything, so we had you know take turns going in and trying to put it out. How how worried were you? Um, you feel pretty confident because you're trained to do what you got to do to survive. So I mean, it's just like going to another job. Yeah, um, Patrick Boberg, I want to turn to you as the producer and director sure. at Iowa PBS of of this film. Um, how did you enter this project? What what are you what most interested you about the this challenge? And by the way, congratulations. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You pointed out I didn't see the final, final version, but <laughs> what I saw was tremendous, <laughs> Patrick. Yeah, so the USS Iowa documentary, st- the idea started around 2017, 2018, um, and we waited for the reunion that uh, happens on the ship um, about every four years. There was one in 2019. So that's when we went out and actually started filming. Uh, the first time we were there was we went through the Union in California where um, veterans from every era come and they see the ship and they, uh, you know, spend some time together and share stories and they get to tour pretty much, I think, anywhere on the ship that they they have uh, lights, I assume. And we got some incredible access along with them. The ship was very accommodating. Um, from a personal standpoint, I, I have no Navy history in my family. Um, I, I have a cousin who currently is in the Navy, but not in, not my immediate family. So I don't have any connection to the battleship other than when I was a child, I saw the the replica model in the Capitol here in Des Moines. And that's about it. And when I was asked by the original producer, um, Andrew Bott, who's now the director of programming and production at Iowa PBS to be a, a videographer on the on the shoot, I was I was ecstatic. I thought it would be a really excellent yeah. idea to um, to take part in, and it's you know it's been four years. There was a little bit of a pause due to certain global events that paused everything, but um, sure. we finally got it together. 
Yeah. Tell us, Patrick, as an outsider, so to speak, at least mm-hmm. compared to, to David and, and Vernie in, in approaching the USS Iowa, uh, what jumped out at you? What what approach oh. did you si- decide to take in the telling of this story? There's so many things you could have focused on, and yeah. what you did focus on is absolutely riveting. There must have been some hard decisions you made there. Sure, certainly. Um, so... Iowa PBS, the documentary, is an hour, and this ship, 50 years of service, uh, you you can't cram that all into an hour. It's impossible. You could maybe do it over a 10-installment series, but as David told me the other day, someone's working on a book that's going to be volumes, I think just about the engineering of of the ship, volumes about, you know, how the ship operates. (laughs) And when you step on the ship and you start interviewing people, I mean, just talking with Vernie here, you start learning things about how... Um, there was a near flood uh, sinking of the ship that he was on. Maybe it wasn't near sinking, but it could eventually lead to it. And you just learn about little little elements of the ship that literally you, you can't fathom how something that was designed in the 30s and built in the 40s, the firing mechanism for the big turrets takes in all these different elements about like how the ship is moving in the water, uh, the trajectory that it needs to go. Um, the the rate at which the Earth is spinning to make sure that it's firing correctly. These these are things that digital computers seem necessary, but somehow analog gear based technology can make it work. And they didn't update it in the eighties. To, 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 you know, they stick with that original technology. You could go on and on with these things, um, and I do when I talk to you know family and relatives about. Oh, here's another interesting element of the of the ship. <laughs> And it, there's just so many hard choices when it comes to making the documentary. Of course, you want to include every era that it was active. You want to include the um, the explosion. And that's the element that we're still working to refine with uh, with David, um, who's also on the line here, um, is making sure we tell those stories correctly. The one thing that I wanted to do with the documentary is not just tell um, ABC, follow the chronology of the ship. If you watch the documentary, mm-hmm. we very – quickly go from the building of the ship in the the era of the early 40s to the museum today. And um, the CIO, David Canfield, who took us all over the ship, there'll be more um, beyond the documentary you can see with David, we eventually will release. Uh, but that that type, those type of things, I think I lost my train of thought, but uh, you know, you, you find out all these interesting things about the ship with, uh, with people that have served in different capacities in different areas of the ship that you have no ideas exist. This is a giant working power plant that you're on one deck, all of a sudden you're two decks below, and you just it doesn't make any sense how it works, and somehow it, it does. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you've just joined us, Patrick Boberg of Iowa PBS, producer and director of USS Iowa, honoring the American spirit, a PBS documentary, of course, on the battleship Iowa, along with Bernie Hart, former USS Iowa crew member, and historian uh, David way intricately involved in this project has been with the USS Iowa Artifacts Collection Manager for many years. Uh, David, I want to go back to you because in my, well, two, three-hour visit on the now floating museum USS Mm -hmm. Iowa, uh, I want to have you tell us about a room that I visited. It was a cabin uh, that they learned in this documentary, special construction to accommodate uh, President Roosevelt, and tell us about the accommodations for him and his uh, trip on the the Iowa. Sure. So uh, President Roosevelt, when he came on board with his uh, War Cabinet staff to journey over the South Atlantic to the um, Cairo, as well as the Tehran conferences, they placed uh, the president in what's called the captain's import cabin. 
normally your captains stay up in the sea cabins behind the bridge. So sometimes let's see the VIPs go in the captain's import cabin and they did modify it with the addition of a bathtub for the president. Cause of course he had like a polio type condition. They also put on two exterior elevators to bring him up to the, um, from the main deck up to his uh, deck level on the O1 and then further up to um, another smaller elevator that went up to the second and third deck. And that was where one of the conference rooms were. So he could uh, move around at least a few uh, decks uh, of the ship. And he also, uh, I believe brought on board his own uh, furniture and his uh, uh, valet or or butler uh, came with him as well. And then we do know in the, uh, oh, the captain's import cabin, the um, room, uh, they held many meetings. And one of them was uh, to finalize the plans for the invasion of Normandy that they were going to present to both uh, Stalin, Churchill, and Shanghai Shek for their approval. So there was uh, a lot of uh, interesting activities that took place in uh, those quarters. Also fascinating, while President Roosevelt was on board, this brought out in the in the, the documentary film, David, almost a catastrophe, uh, a neighboring ship firing a live yes. torpedo. Tell us that story while, while the president's right. on board. Right, right. This wasn't known until about 15 years afterwards. It was kept a secret. But one of the uh, escorting destroyers, the Willie D. Porter, it was a new ship with a relatively new crew, decided to uh, entertain the president and steam alongside Iowa and turn her, swing out her torpedo tubes for a simulated torpedo um, shot. And somebody had left the primer, the launching fuse in there, and they launched a live torpedo at the ship. And initially, um, they tried to signal over and not break radio silence. They used a signal lamp to warn them, you have a live torpedo coming your way. The signal was goofed up. About that same time, they broke radio silence, told Iowa, then Iowa had spotted the torpedo on the way. And so they thought it was an assassination attempt, so they swung all the guns on the porter. They increased speed and managed to avoid or have the uh, torpedo explode in their wake that had uh, grown due to this additional speed that they uh, put on to the um, ship. And yeah, uh, David, knowing knowing battleships as you do, David, what if that live torpedo had hit uh, the the broadside of the, the the battleship? How much damage it might it have done? Uh, well, it could have penetrated uh, several of the exterior tanks, and uh, depending on what condition of the lockdown, uh, the condition of readiness, uh, could have at least created a, a list or a flood, but it would have taken more torpedoes to um, have really sunk the ship. Um, yeah. So it would be a matter of flood damage. I, I cut you off. Was there a, a part of the story you wanted to include as well? Oh, well, the um, onboard Iowa, uh, there was, um, you know, total dismay. And so Admiral King, who was on board the ship, ordered the porter out of the fleet and sent him back to um, their uh, home port. And uh, General Hap Arnold, who was on board the ship, had kind of a, oh, 
tense relationship with Admiral King, and uh, he said to uh, Admiral King, tell me, does this happen often in your Navy? So <laughs> that, of course, didn't you know <laughs> go over too well. Um, so Porter went on. There's a long story with her, too, that uh, it continues into the Pacific, and we, I suppose we yeah. can't take the time now to talk about that, but interesting uh, ship. <laughs> Right. I want to go to Vernie Hart because you spent some three years as a crew member aboard the USS Iowa. How often did it get tense during your time? Um, were there general quarters ever called? Uh, you, you described the fire, certainly an emergency uh, that you, you described a few minutes ago. But other than that, uh, what is the atmosphere like and how often are there conditions where uh, uh, you and the other crew members had to scramble? Uh, there was just a couple of times. Uh, you always practice, so you're always calling away general quarters just to practice, um, just to be prepared so everybody knows what they're doing, um, everybody knows knows their job. Um, we did have a couple floods on the Iowa. Uh, one was when we first went out for sea trials. Um, we had left the shipyard, and we were headed south out of the Gulf, and um, I was on watch, and I went to the front hatch, which was... Uh, number one trunk line going straight down seven decks and a shipyard worker had left a valve open and when I opened up the hatch to check those compartments the water was up to the seventh deck Um, it could have been very bad if somebody wouldn't have discovered it because it was still taking in water Um, we called away a flood Um, we pumped that compartment out made the you know got it all secure Um, later on we were uh Doing a high-powered run, and uh, instead of the rooster tail going out behind the ship and the waters that we were in, um, it came on board the ship, and it ended up in the laundry. The rooster tail. The rooster tail is what? Uh, The rooster tail would actually be the the water leaving the back of the ship from the from the screws or the props turning. So Mm -hmm. just like in your little motorboat, you know, you'd see a little rooster tail going out behind you. Imagine it was going on board, yeah. Coming on board. And it shouldn't have been it shouldn't have been doing that. So how did you how did, was that corrected? What was the um, cause there? That that there came through the ventilation duct into the laundry. And again <laughs> I was <laughs> wow. having to climb out of my pump room and I noticed a trickle coming out of a door. And uh I called away a flood and we had to dewater uh four compartments in the laundry which were flooded from floor to uh ceiling. And uh, that was quite the experience. And I started dewatering it myself with my the training that I had. Use what you got available. And All I, right. Uh, we have to take a break, Vernie. Yep. Wow. Uh, what experiences. Vernie Hart is with us, former USS Iowa battleship crew member, along with historian David Way and Patrick Boberg of Iowa PBS. Uh, when we come back, we want to talk certainly about the disaster that struck the USS Iowa in April of 1989, one of the largest losses of life uh, during peacetime in an accident in U.S. naval history. That's when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Talking this hour about the USS Iowa honoring the American spirit. That's the title of a PBS documentary on the battleship Iowa. We have Patrick Boberg, the producer and director of that documentary. Vernie Hart, uh, former USS Iowa crew member, and David Way, historian and artifacts collection manager. And, um, and the USS Iowa serving during World War II, also during the Korean conflict, uh, and also in many years uh, after that, uh, finally decommissioned for the final time in October of 1990. Uh, for over 10 years, it's been a floating museum. If you get a chance to visit her, be on board her in the port of Los Angeles, it is a an, an incredible visit. Uh, you have to be on it to really understand uh, what a, a feat it is to create something like this and what it must have an inkling of what it must be like uh, to like uh, Vernie to have served aboard her. Uh, let's talk about uh, one of the uh, uh, tragedies, uh, the tragedy that happened aboard the USS Iowa in 1989, uh, April 19th, uh, and uh, we have a little bit of archive audio or interviews that, uh, Patrick, uh, you gained with some who experienced this tragedy. But, uh, David, if you could set this up, uh, what was the, uh, where was the Iowa and, uh, and what happened? Well, she was in a, a peacetime gunnery exercise off one of the um, islands they used down in Puerto Rico. And it was just a normal, you know, peacetime exercise. And unfortunately there was what is called a open breach explosion of the powder that fires a 16 inch shell. In other words, the back end of the gun was not closed. And for whatever reason, the, you know, the powder ignited, which creates uh, what's called a flashback. And it's a hot flame that shoots down several decks um, of the working gun uh, systems. And it created a fire that lasted almost uh, 90 minutes. Um, the crew responded and also had to flood some of the powder magazines so the ship itself wouldn't explode, but they put out the fire. And unfortunately throughout that whole uh, process, uh, the ship did lose, uh, 47 sailors. Yeah. What a tragedy. Patrick Bolberg, as the filmmaker here, how did you, we'll hear an excerpt, a couple of the sailors from then who served, um, sort of grisly details we'll, we'll hear here, mm-hmm. but um, uh, comment on uh, directing, producing uh, this part of the film, the tragedy. Yeah, so this is the the part of the thing, of the story that you initially think should be tell the story. The, the, and then you think that eventually the people who lived through it are not going to be here, and the people who look at the Iowa want to know what happened and hear it from the people who lived through it and, and how it happened. Um, you know, documentaries aren't necessarily about the people who are alive today. You want to get those stories. You want to hear from them. You want them to be able to, you know, vent. Um, but they're, they're, you know, documents that live on beyond that. So when we were approaching people, we went to a remembrance that happens every year in Virginia and the organizer, John Schultz, who uh, served almost the same window as Vernie here, uh, he he runs it and he was helping us out about, you know, what to expect, how um, people handle it. And, of course, in this type of instance, um, PTSD is, is a big situation. I've, I've interviewed not only this project but other projects and previous uh, uh, work in my, in my life, um, people who've 
had, unfortunately, to deal with PTSD. And there's there's definitely different ways that people handle it and how they, they want to talk about things or they don't. Um, and it's it's just sometimes you need to put a microphone in front of people and have them tell their piece. And if, if they get, like, a little too um, over uh, anxious, then you stop, you know, and you, you just – ask if it's okay if you use certain parts and if it's okay if you uh if you want to keep going and that's that's where we got and of course some sailors who we interviewed in 2019 who lived through it uh they've they've come through either um relatively untouched by uh, ptsd or they've had to you know get help from the service things like that and this is a community that seems to be uh that is veterans who served on the island who are very tight-knit and they are even to this day veterans who served in 1989 come to that remembrance who haven't haven't been on the ship, haven't come to a remembrance uh, memorial, um, and you know they they feel the need to unburden themselves. And when we talk to them at the at the remembrance, there's at least one gentleman who's in the documentary, who before we rolled, was like, uh, you know, tell me no and walk away. That's basically how I approached him, but he he wanted to talk, and and we were, were grateful because it's it's going to illustrate and to people going forward what happened on that day and from a firsthand account. And of course, as time goes by, sometimes maybe you misremember things. Maybe you, um, it, it's a personal experience that you had that other people don't can't uh, you know can't source, and you just have to be able to get it out there and show that this is that person's personal experience. So it's it's a it's a hard topic to deal with. And um, as Dave and I have been emailing about the last couple of days, we we still want to get it right. There are things that'll be massaged in this segment of the documentary to make sure that. Um, how the Navy handled it ultimately and did its report that we we tell that story in the most gracious way and empathetic way and factual way. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear an excerpt from the not quite done version that uh, we I, I was able to preview yesterday. Uh, these are sailors' uh, remembrances from the disaster of April 19th, 1989, one of the largest peacetime accidents in U.S. naval history killing 47 sailors aboard the USS Iowa when gun turret 2 exploded. Let's listen. Later in that day, they called for a bosun mate to come in and remove the casualties. So I, I went in, in the, in the decks between, which there's two projectile decks, an electric deck and a mechanical deck, and then you get down to the bottom, you got the powder flats. The electrical decks and the, the upper projectile decks the fireball shot down through the open hatches and stayed contained in the shape of the hatches and went down and mushroomed in the bottom. But as it passed by, it caused a vacuum and it sucked the air out of the space. The, the guys, the only thing you could see that they were gone is they had a little blood coming out of their ears and their nose. I'll never forget that day. The bad thing about a fire on a ship is you're using water to put it out well, you're floating in that water. And the more water you use to try and put it out, you could sink yourself. It happened mid-morning, the explosion did. I brought the last guy out, me and one other guy. We brought the last guy out about 2 a.m. the next morning. And my clothes smelt like burnt flesh and scorched hydraulic fluid, so I took them off and threw them off the ship. 47 sailors dying in 1989 in that explosion. David Way, comment here because Patrick referenced it here, and you're still working on this part of the film. Um, 
it's pointed out in the film, at least the version that I saw, there was an investigation first thought to be an intentional act by a sailor, then that taken back by the U.S. Navy. Tell us about the controversy. Um, well, just, you know, that there was a controversial um, reaction to the initial decision that the Navy came out with, and then that was followed up with uh, several different investigations that took place, um, some at scientific institutes, and we still feel that there is not a definite, definitive answer. Um, our uh, vice president, who's an engineer, uh, Mike Gesher, did a lot of research, and there's a two-hour special he put together. You can actually find it on YouTube, and he comes up with three plausible scenarios, but he feels that nobody really has a definite uh, conclusion or an answer of what took place. We do also, um, every April 19th, just as at Iowa Point in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, there's a memorial ceremony. We also in Iowa, every April 19th, have a ceremony. And we do, you know, have a program for the veterans that come back that are still struggling uh, with the impacts uh, from that day. And so uh, Dave Canfield, uh, one of Iowa's veterans from the 80s that uh, has been mentioned already and is in the uh, film. He uh, usually uh, helps with their uh, coming back on board the ship, and he also uh, usually uh, handles that ceremony that takes place every year. Yeah. Vernie, you had left the service on the USS Iowa in 86, so it was several years before this tragedy, but I imagine when you heard about it, it had to be a crushing experience for you to hear about that. Oh, it was. I mean, uh, some of the people that were still in them turrets, uh, I knew some of them still because they were the actual plank owners and and still were serving on the Iowa. And you just, anytime, it, it doesn't matter if it's uh, if you're on there or not, anytime you're attached to a ship, you're still a close-knit family. And uh, so I still watch um, the reunions. Uh, they brought, they podcast it from, Norfolk, and they also do the one from the ship, and I watch them on uh, the Battleship Iowa uh, network, and, uh, you know, it's touching, you know, and my heart goes out to every one of them, and that that whole tragedy is something that we always practice for. We we ran several drills, you know, if if something happened, the fire, you know, how are we going to battle a fire into the gun turret? You got to remember, we were a young crew, and uh, a lot of the older sailors that were around when them ships were built were gone. So um, we had to figure everything out kind of on our own or read old manuals to uh, figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. The last five minutes or so, as we focus on this new Iowa PBS documentary, the USS Iowa honoring the American spirit on the tremendous. Uh, history of the USS Iowa battleship. I have to include this, uh, uh, David Way, because uh, you were part of a group that saved the Iowa, and thanks to you and and others, uh, anyone can visit and tour the USS Iowa, a floating museum in the Port of Los Angeles. Uh, tell us that story. Well, there was um, years ago. There was an initial group that I was part of. It was called the Iowa Class Preservation Association, and this is when uh, New Jersey sister ship battleship was still on the West coast and Iowa was on the East coast and they flip flopped those. So Iowa came to the West coast and New Jersey could 
go back to Camden, New Jersey to be a Museum Memorial ship there. So we changed our focus um, and teamed up with folks in the Port of Los Angeles, San Pedro, and the city of Los Angeles to uh, get their permission and blessing to have us uh, turn in a proposal to the Navy um, to have the ship uh, be transferred to our nonprofit group to become a museum memorial. And there's a 1,200-page document that you submit, and it covers your docking plan, your operational plan, but most importantly, your business plan. How are you going to be able to, um, you know, uh, be able to survive and uh, take care of the ship and the operations that are necessary uh, to have an attraction such as uh, Iowa? So we, you know, the stars all aligned. There was a lot of moments where we didn't know where the funds were coming to uh, have a, the tow take place and uh, to, the initial tow to get out of the um, uh, Benicia and the uh, mothball fleet. And uh, we just kept moving forward and we made it to the finish line. And we've been uh, making improvements to the ship and refurb- maintaining her and refurbishing her these uh, last 10 years. And we have a future plan to uh, add more exhibits on the ship underneath the banner of the National Museum of the Surface Navy. So Iowa's uh, story continues. Yeah. Vernie Hart, as a former USS Iowa crew member, uh, were you to be on board right now on a nice, sunny Southern California day? What what part of the ship is your favorite? Where do you like to hang out or did you like to hang out? Oh, I, I used to go out and uh, early in the mornings just before the sun come up. And uh, I'd lay on the back vents coming from the laundry and stuff, and I, I would just watch the stars if it was nice out. And uh, huh. there was, you know, there was a lot of times that that's how you just passed your time. You had, you know. And, and you I? would have been any, anywhere in the world, I mean, because this traversed the globe, right, in your time. Right. Uh, yeah, because we went to northern Europe and uh, up in the Arctic Circle and stuff. Um, so it was, it was a great time. And uh, no matter how, you know, at the end of the day, when you're done sailing and you made it back home safe and everything, uh, just as military all together, we're all brothers and sisters as one. And uh, no matter if, you know, some of the guys I served with, like Carl, uh, Carl Boggs and, and uh, Richard Rufanis and them and uh, Kenneth Tanner uh, and Doug Shoup, you know, he was uh, he was the first guy that I ran a shop with, and uh, it, it was it was great. And I hung out with them guys. You wanted to go see ports. You you worked hard. You played hard, and that's just the way yeah. it is. Um, and during peacetime, um, it was something to do. Um, sometimes uh, we did a lot of. Uh, you'll see it in the documentary that we did sometime in South Central America, and it was uh, pleasing to go to some of those countries. And we did a lot of orphanage stuff, uh, went to an all-girls orphanage, built a playground for them, and just to watch some girls that never had nothing to play with um, yeah. to go down the slide that we built or bring the toys to shore. Um, it was just something, it was pleasing at that time. Okay. Uh, in the minute or two, we have uh, quick uh, Quick um, comments from uh, Patrick and David. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Patrick, what do you hope uh, viewers will, will take away most of all from your documentary film here? 
Well, I think if you visit the ship and you see the the guns, you're you're blown away, and then you want to see what it looks like when they fire. That's in the documentary multiple times, um, and you get firsthand accounts of what it's like to be on the ship or feel it rattling the whole thing, including from um, a sailor who, it, when we're in the turret, talking about how it, it he says it wrecks your body as it moves. But also, yeah. you see the inner workings of the ship. You see Broadway, which is the longest continuous passage, which. I had to interview somebody there because it just looks like you're a, what you think the inside of a of a ship looks like. And also, lastly, um, when you watch a, a fictional film like Saving Private Ryan or um, All Quiet on the Western Front, these are visualizations that are quite graphic and people can't take. But um, when it comes to a documentary, we have the ability to give these firsthand accounts and they they put people there in their mind without – giving them like the awful opinion when you think of what happens in that turret you you think of the worst but yeah. um it, i mean yes people died but it, it wasn't it wasn't as visceral as you as you think and then you hear that it yes it was it was bad it was graphic it was a bad day for everyone and yeah. it continues to be a bad experience but we get them we get them close without without getting it too okay. close Sorry. Patrick Boberg of Iowa PBS, thank you very much. Check it out. USS Iowa honoring the American spirit. Thanks to historian David Way and Vernie Hart, a U.S. Navy veteran. We appreciate this conversation. Take care, gentlemen. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for listening.